Ukraine is gradually advancing on the front lines. Despite internal problems, Russia raises the stakes in its nuclear blackmailing. Meanwhile, Ukraine's partners remain committed to standing with Ukraine. You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Hirmolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. I'm joined by my colleagues, Maxim Panchenko and Anastasia Herasimchuk, journalist and analyst at Ukraine World. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. This episode is our overview of a major events and trends in and around Ukraine over the past week. We are talking about the week from 24th until 30th of June 2023. So Maxim and Nastya, hello. Thank you so much for joining this podcast. And I will ask Maxim to elaborate what are the key topics we are going to discuss today. Uh, hello, Volodya. Uh, so, first of all, we are going to take stock of what's going on in the front lines, how the counteroffensive is going. We're going to touch upon the mutiny of the of Prigozhin and his uh, Wagner private military compa- uh, company. We are going to delve into Russia's blackmail and the, and the situation around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, as well as other heinous things that Russia is doing, like killing a couple of Ukrainian teenagers in Berdyansk. We are going also to elaborate on the latest, one of the latest shellings in Kramatorsk and how Russia is continuing to show Ukrainian cities. And finally, we're going to switch to the international plane uh, in the context of which we'll talk about the latest package of US assistance to Ukraine and the pending European summit that largely focuses on Ukraine-related issues. Thank you, Maxim. So let us start with the counteroffensive. Uh what is going on on the front line and uh, what are the advancements of the Ukrainian army? So basically the uh, situation on the front lines is very much similar to the dynamics, are uh, very much similar to what has been uh, the case during our previous uh, recording of the of the previous episode. Uh, Ukraine is gradually advancing. Ukraine in the last week has liberated a number of villages in the south. So, and it seems like the south is going to be the major point of uh, effort, major area of Ukraine's effort in this counteroffensive. We have ev- uh, gone even uh, further uh, around the flanks of Bakhmut. So that seems to be a cornerstone uh, point on the map for Ukraine, actually for both sides too. But the biggest novelty, uh, quite a tiny one at this point, it needs to be elaborated by the troops on the ground, but still uh, Ukraine seems to have um, managed to establish a foothold on the left bank of the Dnipro River uh, because uh, previously uh, after Ukraine uh, had liberated the right bank of the river, the parts that had been occupied, the Antonyevsky Mist, uh, the Antonievsky Bridge uh, it was demolished, and later, uh, a couple of weeks back, the Kachovka Dam was demolished, which basically were the only uh, the only threads, in a way, leading and empowering 
uh, Ukrainian uh, army potentially to cross the river to the left bank and start fighting for the left bank. So that deemed uh, almost impossible to do given the destruction of these two uh, structures that I uh, said about. But reports say that Ukrainians still have managed to make it across the river and are now trying to expand the foothold, which also means that Russia, that basically Ukraine is trying to uh, to fight Russia's in their rear or in what they like to think about as their rear. Yes, indeed, this is very important and the Ukrainian counteroffensive may uh, seem to be quite slow at the moment, but... Uh, of course, there is a, uh, a, a preparation and uh, uh, making this foothold is uh, also a very important development. Nastya, let us talk about Russia. We have seen over the past week a dramatic development around the mutiny of the Wagner Group. And we have made a special uh, Twitter space about this, about the consequences of this mutiny. We will also post this Twitter space uh, on our uh, you know, podcast platform so you can you can be able to listen to, to this analysis that we have made with our colleagues from Democratic Initiatives Foundation. So uh, what was it actually that the whole world was following the, the last Saturday and what are its consequences? Hello, Bologna. This event we are talking about was really interesting. And in the night of 24th of June, the whole world got stuck to the news reports and especially Ukrainians. We were observing so closely what was going on in, in Russia. So uh, the head of Russian uh, paramilitary company, Wagner, together with uh, the fighters of this group, um, organized a mutiny. Uh, and the alleged pretext for this uh, mutiny was uh, the uh, resentment uh, by Wagner fighters about the Russian military who shelled um, the units of this uh, company uh, from behind their lines. So Prigozhin accused Russian military leadership uh, of um, attacking Wagner Group. And he was also uh, accusing, for, for some time, he was accusing uh, Russian military leadership and uh, uh, some parts of Russian leadership in general of um, of bad managing uh, of the front line and of bad managing of army. So he announced the crusade to Moscow and uh, he uh, was going to, as he told, to bring justice to Russian army. Uh, so the main achievements, let's say, achievements of uh, these paramilitary fighters and their leaders was uh, taking control of Rostov-na-Donu, which is a huge city in Russia and the uh, uh, the command of southern um, group of army of Russia is located there. So these fighters, they took control of all the military facilities there and they continued their move towards Moscow. And we were closely following it. But about 200 meters from Moscow, uh, they stopped their movement and uh, Prigozhin agreed to... Um, uh, uh, to, to, to stop its movement by mediation uh, from Belarus uh, self-proclaimed president's side, Lukashenko. And he told that the aims were uh, of his so-called crusade were achieved and he doesn't want the Russian blood to be uh, spilled and so on. So he stopped his 
uh, mutiny and allegedly he fled to uh, Belarus now. Uh, but mm, the situation isn't absolutely clear. We don't know so many facts about it, what was behind the scenes while we were observing this play. However, uh, there are some uh, important symptoms uh, around this situation. And I talked with the military expert uh, Mikhailo Samus. Uh, we were discussing this situation and he told that even though it was it looked like a play, uh, the mm, Wagner group and Prigozhin himself uh, is a project of special services of Russia. So uh, after some time, Russian oligarchs and representatives of the president's administration joined the forces to develop this project. So Prigozhin is a figure created by these forces. And about uh, half a year ago, uh, he, with his group, began to play a political role in Russia. Um, because, and in the light of concerns regarding Putin's rule, those who were responsible for creating this project uh, decided that um, it's time to bring some changes inside Russia. So this attempted mutiny was likely aimed at demonstrating that Putin is gradually losing control over the state. So uh, the very aim of this event wasn't the um, Ustin Putin from power, but demonstrating him that he is not uh, that the country is not under his control fully, and if such forces want to take Moscow, they would do it if they wish. Uh, so um, Prigozhin, as a figure, let's say, uh, was sacrificed for this, because uh, now some circles in Russian army and some people who supported him back then um, consider them him to be a traitor because he abandoned his announced plans. But what is important for us is not uh, exactly who is the traitor and what were the final aims of this play. Uh, from Ukraine's point of view, these moments are positive indeed. They indicate that um, there is no uh, solid control over violence in, in Russia. So there is no uh, solid control over power in Russia. So Putin is not that um, strong as some people used to think. And um, it is also important regarding the military operations. Russia's ability to conduct them under such conditions may be significantly reduced. So uh, such um, consequences may be also seen on the front line. And uh, here we talk non not only about motivation of Russian troops, which is likely to wane, but the very goals of their so-called military operation may also shift. So there are so many black points in this story, but it looks like it was the only the very beginning of something bigger which is going to happen in Russia, and we are closely observing and expecting something important to happen. Yes, thank you, Nastya. Thank you for this account. This is really, uh, I agree with you, that this is a testimony of uh, Putin's weakness. And, uh, for example, if we imagine that he wins the battle against Prigozhin, if he beats him, if he destroys him, uh, that would probably mean that he is he has become, again, very strong. But this didn't happen. And uh, he actually... 
didn't hold his word. First, he said that Prigozhin is a traitor. Then he uh, actually uh, uh, reached a deal with him. And uh, the second thing is that he needed a negotiator like Lukashenko, maybe somebody else. Maybe Lukashenko is just uh, an invented figure. So indeed, I, I would share this analysis that this is uh, only the first or the second uh, episode in a, in a big a big game. And again, let me address you to our Twitter space uh, on this subject. Uh, you can also find it very shortly on, on our podcast platforms. Let us talk about, uh, about uh, the tragic events, another, another round of tragic events and another round of Russian war crimes. And I'm talking about Kramatorsk uh, here. So on June 27th, Russia shelled the frontline town of Kramatorsk. Some people say that this was as the 300 missiles, but there are also there is also information that there were much more high precision missiles, meaning Iskander missiles, and they hit a local cafe uh, which is called Ria Lounge. And to tell you the truth, uh, when we travel to Kramatorsk, we very often also stayed in this restaurant because it's one of the rare place when people are gathering. And the very, very sad news for us, for Ukrainian uh, writers, is that our dearest colleague, Victoria Amelina, was uh, severely injured uh, in this strike, and doctors are now fighting for her life. So, therefore, uh, I mean, this is very hard for me to talk about this, uh, this issue. Pen Ukraine just issued a statement, which you can find on Pen Ukraine website. Uh, I, what I can say is that we should be very careful uh, in talking about this issue because Victoria is, of course, a public person. She's a very, very well-known writer and uh, she has been documenting Russian war crimes. Now she, she became one of those targets for Russian war crimes. But she also, of course, has a family. She also has a son. Uh, and uh, the doctors are fighting for her lives. Therefore, we should be very careful about what we say, actually, where we say. This is a very, very dramatic right now situation. But uh, also, this was a Russian war crime, and we know about 12 people who died, including three children. And uh, in the number of these three children, there are two twin girls, uh, 14 years girls, and uh, we have the reports about their mother who is saying that I want to bury these girls in white dresses. This is when you, when you listen to it, when you hear it, it's just impossible not to, not to cry, not to, not to have this, these feelings towards them. 65, 65 people were wounded. And I would like to say that this is clearly a targeted operation, Russian targeted operation. They knew that there is a gathering of people there. They knew that there is a popular cafe there. And uh, they, they, they hit it deliberately. And what is cynical about this act, this act of savage violence, is that uh, the Russian propaganda has been spreading the information that official Russian propaganda, official Russian Ministry of Defense, spreading the information that they actually destroyed a, a Ukrainian headquarter uh, of this, in this region, which is a lie, which is an, a, a cynical lie because they really targeted a civilian, civilian place and, and, and uh, 
wounding or killing civilian people. Also, this is an, an event with international repercussions because our friends from Colombia, uh, who are actually behind the Aguanta Ukraine campaign, uh, a, a great campaign to support Ukraine in Latin America. Colombian writer uh, Hector Abad Facilince and uh, the former High Commissioner for Peace Sergio Jaramillo were also there. And Catalina Gomez, a brilliant journalist, a Colombian journalist who is covering this war from the very beginning, working for a Spanish version of France 24, was also in this place. Uh, their lives are not threatened, uh, and uh, this is a good news, but as I said, our hearts are really with our dearest colleague, Victoria Melina, but also with other people who suffered uh, during the strike, 65 wounded people, and uh, with a great, great tragedy, uh, also 12 dead. And let me remind you that this is not the first time when Russians are just hitting the gatherings of people. And uh, we have seen it in Kramatorsk in April 2020, uh, too, when uh, Russians just targeted the, 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 the Kramatorsk railway station. And at that moment, imagine a, a missile going to a crowd of people and uh, it killed uh, 61 person, at least 61 person at the time, April 2022. Or we can tell you about the multi-story buildings in Izum where Russians dropped the aviation bombs. Or we can tell you about Kherson and the market where Russians targeted the crowd of people. Lots of these stories. This is really a terrorist state. This is really inhumane cruelty who is killing our citizens and who is also targeting foreign citizens. And as we said in our statement in Pan-Ukraine, that this is not only about Ukrainians, this is about us humans. Let me go on, although it's very difficult to go on, and uh, let me address Maxim uh, with the question, actually... Um, well, I would I would come back uh, I would come back to Russian terrorism and let me address Nasty about these rumors of a possible uh, possible explosion of the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant, and um, this is also very important, of course, this Russian blackmail. So, Nasty, what can we what can we say about this? The situation around the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant is getting um, tense. And uh, the last week, uh, the head of the military intelligence, Kirill Budanov, and Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky warned about Russian uh, Russians' preparations to commit a terrorist act at the NPP. Uh, and this week, uh, the story got its continuation, unfortunately. And uh, since the very morning today, we are observing situation there because um uh, Russia started to withdraw some of uh, their military personnel from the nuclear from the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant and they also uh, withdraw some forces from the um the nuclear power plant satellite city in Ahodar so the Russian military are getting less numerous there which is a clear sign of something has been uh, prepared something bad uh, there were also workers, uh, representatives of Russian Energoatom. They also left the station uh, today in the morning. 
and there are also instructions received by the workers of uh, Zaporizh the Zaporizhia NPP. Uh, so they were instructed to uh, accuse Ukraine in case if something goes wrong at the power plant. Uh, and there was this um, announcement ba- uh, made by the Russian foreign ministry. So they warned, let's say, let's say warned the world that uh, Ukraine is going to... Um, prepare a terrorist act at the Parisian nuclear power plant. And we all know the Russian mirroring tactics. So they accuse their victims of what they are going to do themselves. Uh, nevertheless, the Ukrainian authorities are getting ready for every course, any course of events. And several days ago, there were major trainings Uh, in several uh, regions uh, of Ukraine, which are close to the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant. So the emergency services were uh, exercising how to act in the uh, worst-case scenario. And uh, we also talked with uh, several Ukrainian experts on nuclear security. Uh, We were discussing uh, what is going on at the Zaporizhian nuclear power plant and what Uh, can be the consequences if something bad uh, happens there. Uh, so uh, for now, the situation is as follows: the um, like the the Parisian nuclear power plant has six uh, power units. Five of them are in the state of cold stop. One of them in is in the state of hot stop. And as Uh, as Olga Kosharna, who is an independent expert on nuclear energy and nuclear safety, told, uh, there is a big difference between these two states of power units. So if uh, the accident happens at the power unit in a cold stop state, we would have about, um, about eight days before the major accident happens. But if uh, the reactor is in hot shutdown, the uh, catastrophic melting of the active zone would occur on only after 27 hours. And it's also very important to know that Russians were pre- preparing the information space for such actions uh, for, for a long time. So it's not in use Uh, what is going on now. So Russians were doing that since at least May. Um, what is also important to note uh, here is that um, Ukrainian regulator, uh, the Ukrainian State Atomic Energy Regulatory Commission, issued an order to put that last power unit into a state of cold shutdown. But the occupation authorities don't let do that because they want to increase the risks in the event of a disaster. And keeping, maintaining uh, the reactor in this state, they can even um, bring it to the minimum of controlled power. So they can even launch the reactor so that in the case of accident, the consequences would be much harder. Um, The experts say that it's really difficult to project the negative consequences of the accidents because so many factors are at play. So we can say what uh, would happen uh, only if the accident happens because um, the consequences are determined by the processes in the reactor. They also determined by the weather conditions. So it's really hardly possible to 
make any prognosis to uh, tell what is going to happen. But nevertheless, it's very important to get ready even uh, for the worst case scenario, just in case. Thank you, Nastya. Thank you for this analysis. Indeed, we should be ready. And after the explosion of the Kachovka Dam, uh, we should be ready for everything, unfortunately. And these signs that the Russians are leaving, gradually leaving the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is, of course, a very, very worrying signs. So let, let's let's follow the situation, but we're really on the brink of another ecocide and another huge disaster, environmental disaster provoked by the Russian troops in Ukraine. Nastya, can we move to another story, also tragic story, when in Berdyansk, Russia's, uh, Russians killed two 16-year-old teenagers. And we have seen those videos of, this, uh, of these teenagers who actually uh, claim that they are fighting against Russia, 16-year-old boys. Russia is sowing death on Ukrainian lands indeed. And uh, the crimes they have been committing here are really horrible. And this story about two Ukrainian teenagers, two patriotic Ukrainian teenagers, is another, unfortunately, we say another example of such inhuman actions. So these 16 years old boys, Tigran Oganisyan and Makita Hangan, uh, they were under scrutiny of uh, occupation authorities and Russian military for some time. Mm, uh, because of um, this situation, like Berdyansk is occupied by Russian forces, that's why it's very difficult to find uh, clear and precise information about uh, all the circumstances of this tragic event. But uh, according to what the relatives of the boys told, they were uh, under scrutiny of these uh, authorities uh, because they were patriotic. They were uh, showing, they were demonstrating their pro-Ukrainian uh, position. That's why uh, the occupation authorities accused them of sabotage actions at the railway. And that's why they were uh, uh, following them. They were scrutinizing these boys and they were even trying to uh, imprison them. Uh, what is also important is in this story, one of these boys, Tigran Aganisyan, he was already uh, detained by by Russians uh, last year, and he was even tortured in, in prison. Uh, and uh, that, that's really inhumane. And a teenager, a boy, he uh, witnessed, he experienced the most horrible things in, in his life. Uh, so uh, sometime be- before they were killed, this boy even told his mom that he wouldn't survive the uh, captivity anymore. Like he wouldn't manage to endure such sufferings again. So something was going on. These boys were uh, under uh, very serious attention of these occupation authorities. And um, the boys recorded that video and after some time they were shot at. And um, what is also awful, awful about this situation, the boys, the bodies of the killed boys were not still given to their relatives, so they cannot even bury them. So that's another example, that's another witness of uh, evidence of ugly face of Russian military machine and the essence of Russian 
politics in general. Thank you, Nastya. Thank you for telling this story. It's a very, really heartbreaking as dozens and hundreds of other stories from Ukraine. We'll make a small pause and then we'll come back to some events around Ukraine. So let us continue and we are going to talk about events which are related to Ukraine, the, the foreign events. And one of them is the EU summit that took place in on uh, June 29th to 30th, which was largely focused on Ukraine-related issues. Maxim, you followed this summit very, very closely. What can you tell us about it? Uh, yes, indeed. And I not only am following the summit, I am physically here in Brussels now to, to follow it. And uh, so judging from the press conferences and from the final communique of the, of the European uh, heads of state and government, uh, the major idea about Ukraine is that the EU is going to do more of the same. So uh, continuing to provide uh, military financial support for Ukraine, training for Ukrainian soldiers abroad. Uh, and uh, but it's not only more of the same, as I said, it also it appears from the uh, language of the final communique that even though it lacks any specific terms, any specific headlines, the language of the document suggests that the uh, efforts that have been uh, that have been uh, there so far, they are going to be further conceptualized. So if there have been uh, packages of financial support for the last year uh, for Ukraine, and uh, I think around 70 billion euros uh, is the amount of money that Ukraine received from the EU in the in the 16 months of the war. Uh, from now on, uh, the EU is going to conceptualize this uh, financial support, meaning it is going to embed uh, it uh, in its long-term or middle-term planning, uh, budgetary planning, because Previously, money, were t money was taken from the special reserve uh, funds, from the, for, for instance, from the European Peace Facility that had been previously established for similar occasions, but not just from uh, Ukraine, for Ukraine, but also for Africa, for instance. Now, the EU has is given signals that it, it is even going to include the needs of Ukraine, the long-term financial needs of Ukraine, uh, into the budgetary planning of the EU as a whole. So this is a major step uh, towards the institutionalization of uh, the EU's uh, support for Ukraine. And it basically indicates that when the EU says that it is going to support Ukraine for as long as it takes, Actions like this is something that uh, helps the EU uh, to prove that this is what they really mean to do. But the biggest, uh, but the biggest shift in paradigm, I would say, is not even this when it comes to the outcomes of the of the summit. It may not seem like a, too much a thing right now, uh, but. Uh, the EU leaders have agreed that they, what they what they will do with the freeze Russian assets in its territory, because there has long been this debate whether, like, okay, we can freeze them, uh, these assets, but can we really confiscate them? Can we use them? Can we transfer them to Ukraine? Because because the legal 
framework is absent for that and that would technically be illegal. So the decision that the EU has uh, found for now is to uh, give Ukraine the profits that come from the VAT-related uh, procedures. Uh, the uh, Like when these funds are taxed in the EU, uh, these profits from the use of these funds that would normally go to the EU budget, you know, to the EU stakeholders, they will now be transferred to Ukraine. And that may, may not be as impressive as several hundred uh, million of uh, Russian assets that are present in, in uh, the EU and that can be transferred to Ukraine. But still, we're going to, uh, we're talking here about two to three billion euros annually is the estimation that i came across today which is which also is not nothing so uh, and of course uh, it's a political thing it's a good start that the this is the first decision practical decision that translates into real money when it comes to the to actions around the freezed assets of russia and i think there is more to come so the process is basically unblocked so fingers crossed there are going to be more action that is going to translate to translate in even more confiscations very important and it's it's very important to find a sustainable solution with regard to russian funds because Russia should pay, obviously, for the damaging uh, it it actually caused in Ukraine. It cannot, of course, repay human lives. Human lives are losses forever. They are irreversible. But at least uh, what concerns the destruction of the economy, all this material damage, Russia should pay. Maxim, and the last topic is the uh, American support uh, support package, which was announced a few a few days ago. What can you tell about this? Yes, so uh, this is, this comes under the same umbrella. This is a five hundred million uh, dollar worth package, uh, and it includes uh, basically the replenishment. The idea of the package is the replenishment of the stockpiles that Ukraine already has from its partners, primarily from from the US too, uh, because there are uh, because some of the stockpiles of heavy weaponry and of the ammunition they use, they get exhausted because of the uh, because of the realities of war, because of the intensity of the uh, fire, uh, which is why uh, from what I see, uh, this package consists of uh, ammunition for HIMARS systems, for Patriot systems. Uh, it consists of several dozen of Bradleys and Strikers, I think 25 to 30 of each of them. And uh, if you think about um, the contents of this package, I think it really strikes as like the uh, supplement on the go, so to say, because we have seen uh, reports about Ukraine having lost and, and some uh, some of the Leopards, some of the Bradleys in the warfare, particularly there have been reports from the south, from the Zaporizhia Donetsk regions. So, and I think this is like a planned refurbishment in a way of the capacities that Ukraine has. And also the, in the uh, sum of the package assistance, of the assistance package also tells us that because when that when it had been some institutional supplies like the first supply of uh, HIMARS or the first supply of the Patriot systems uh, or the first supplies of the heavy machinery, uh, those packages were a couple of billion dollars worth. And now usually packages that come in half a billion dollars, they usually indeed are aimed at this replenishment. So this it also 
proves this idea that it is not something is, that the philosophy in the U.S. is not uh, like we gave you this weaponry. Now go show us what you can do with it. It's the long-term commitment. It's the entire process. So uh, this also shows by association that uh, the U.S. is going to be there with us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it is important that the Western partners and not only Western partners, international partners are indeed with Ukraine sustainably because this war can take a long time. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko. I am chief, ed- uh, chief editor of UkraineWorld.org, also Ukrainian philosopher and journalist. My colleagues Maxim Panchenko and Anastasia Heresimchuk from Ukraine World commented this week for you. Let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash Ukraine World. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at PayPal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Ukraine World is a project by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.